This is the hope of the season of Lent, that we might draw near to the cross, that we might feel the weight of the cross, and that we might wait there as our cries join the cry of Jesus. Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First United Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. Welcome again. You know, when I was in college um, a little while ago, uh, it was in the... It, who laughed? I know y'all like, oh, I get it. I get it. Right. You're saying it wasn't that long. All right. It, it, was a little, it was long enough ago that this was the height of the email forward pandemic. Do y'all remember those days when people would forward you things for, that they, they sometimes were real stories and a lot of times they weren't real stories at all. It was just some made up story, but people would forward them as though they had been signed in blood by their grandfather and they couldn't leave them alone. And they would say, if you don't read this and forward it to 10 people, then you're just, you, just not, you must not love Jesus. You just must not care. I was all, it always came with that baggage. So anyways, if you don't remember the email forward days and you're too young or whatever, uh, you didn't miss anything. So I'm just, but just that's when it was. So in those days, there was an email forward that would go around and it was kind of copied and pasted and mingled together of supposedly a medical doctor somewhere that had gone through and tried to sort of spell out in medical terms what would have been happening in a common crucifixion. So the idea was that we would get to understand how painful and excruciating it was and what was actually happening to the joints and the bones and everything else in, and how suffocation works and it was all that. And so, of course, some preachers, it became popular, you would show up, it seems like it was very common. We would go to church and all of a sudden that would be the sermon and the preacher would say, now I'm going to read this from a medical doctor so that you can feel the weight of the pain of what Jesus went through. And then they would proceed to read through the whole account, uh, not just one time, not just once a year, it was pretty often. And so, um, you know, it's like, man, that's rough. So I get what they were trying to do. I get what the preachers were trying to do. I get what the email forward was trying to do um, to sort of affect us, to emotionally move us, to really fully appreciate and comprehend the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. So I get that. And I suppose there's some value in that. There's some value in films that attempt to depict the experience of crucifixion for those of us who have never witnessed a crucifixion. However, I find it interesting that the gospel writers don't spend time discussing in medical detail what was happening to Jesus' body. But they do give us windows into what Jesus was thinking and what he was feeling. And yes, certainly we can imagine the physical pain. The gospel writers painstakingly record for us what were Jesus' last words, which happened to be prayers. And not just any prayers, but they were prayers from the Psalms. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer has pointed out, Jesus died with the Psalms on his lips. Jesus died with the Psalms on his lips. And Jesus' last words were the opening phrases from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So as we're in this series uh, looking at different psalms, the different types of psalms as we journey together to the cross, uh, I thought I would take this opportunity. Uh, next week is Youth Sunday, so we'll have something a little different. But I wanted to take 
a minute to show, to kind of lift up one of the Passion Psalms, one of the Psalms where Jesus is, you know, he's saying these words and the gospel writers understood that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were a fulfillment of these Passion Psalms that David would have written, the psalmist wrote, that people have been praying for thousands of years. And so they're connecting the dots for us in the Gospels. Mark's doing it in this case. John does it very well. And I wonder if the best way to more fully appreciate the work of Jesus on the cross, for those of us who read these stories and we believe the stories and we appropriate the truth of the stories, is for us to reflect on why Jesus might have felt abandoned on the cross. Why did Jesus feel abandoned? On the cross why did he choose those words my God my God why have you forsaken me as his last words Hebrews 12 really celebrates some more detail about what was happening on the cross and the writer of Hebrews invites us to fix our eyes on Jesus he calls him the author and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and then sat down at the right hand of God. So we're invited to consider this sacrifice of Jesus, of course. And so we're working on that, and our imagination is fully engaged. And so we're going to look today at perhaps part of the reason why Jesus used these words as his last words and as he breathed his last. We don't have time today or really in any sermon to fully explore the, the mystery of the Trinity. We, we could preach a series of sermons on that from now until the world ends and we still wouldn't exhaust the mystery of the Trinity. But we remember that when, this is back to Confirmation 101 and we, we talked to teenagers about how it's very important to understand that Jesus was fully God and fully human. It's, it's the miracle. It's a Trinitarian mystery. It's the only person that's ever been this way. Uh, Jesus wasn't half God, half human, or anything like that. He was fully God from all time. And then, but in his incarnation, by, as John said, by the, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, Jesus also became fully human. So fully God, fully human. The fancy theology word for that is the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. Fully God, fully human. So we, we hold that. We see that. That's part of the miracle of Jesus. So Jesus in his full humanity was capable of thinking and feeling and doing everything that we do, knowing every human emotion. This is what's fascinating about the temptation account. This is why it makes it so amazing because Jesus had the ability to be tempted and to sin or else it wouldn't have been so unbelievable and fascinating that he resisted the temptation by the power of the Spirit. So he walked that way just like we do. It wasn't like he had his Superman shirt on and so that made it easier. Uh, but he had to face the same demons that we face, the same uh, things that we face, and, and he did that without sin, which is the beauty of, part of the beauty of Jesus' life. So this is an important detail that reminds us of God's extraordinary commitment to be with his people, his extraordinary commitment to be with us, and his extraordinary commitment to save his people. And this was the way that he chose to save us, not by, you know, just kind of casting something out or dropping something in like parachuted from heaven, but instead he came to earth and was born of a virgin and spent time here learning what it was like to be fully human. So 
Our rescue from Egypt, if you'll remember back to the story of Moses, our rescue from Egypt, the salvation of our people from Egypt, involved the God dealing swiftly with our people's oppressors, the people that put us in slavery. So Pharaoh and his army. So part of salvation was, you know, that's the, the song in Exodus 15. It's celebrating, hey, God, you drowned horse and rider. Right? You took care of the people that have been oppressing us for 400 years. When you were saving us and taking us out of Egypt, you drowned them in the Red Sea, and they're no more. They're not going to come back. They're, not, they're, they're taken care of. And so in the same way, uh, Jesus, when he's rescuing us and redeeming us from sin and darkness, he deals swiftly and effectively and ultimately with our enemies. Uh, our sins, right, they, don't, they can't come back on us. They're drowned in the waters of baptism, and Jesus deals with them there. And that's part of the beauty of the gospel that we celebrate. And so the, the destruction of sin and darkness is what Jesus is about and his mission to rescue us. And as we just approach the cross, we remember as Jesus contemplated going to the cross and even prayed that the cup would be taken from him, but yet not his will, but the will of the Father be done, we remember that the heart of God, the heart of Christianity, therefore, is to give. The heart of the gospel is to give, and that's what we take up as Christians, and we give out of an abundance of love that others might have life. That's the reason. That's the impetus. And so this spells out more detail uh, in what, what's always celebrated so wonderfully in John 3.16, that we all learn, we all teach our kids, and it sums it up so well, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So the reflection on the cross, meditating on the cross and what actually happened there helps us understand a little bit more in detail what we mean by God loved us so he gave something to us and what this gift looks like and the choice that Jesus made to be a willing gift in that way. Listen to how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians and then again in Galatians. Listen to what Paul talks about when he's reflecting on the cross and inviting us to consider what's happened and what is happening. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us, right? He's making his appeal to the world through the church. Like Ryan prayed in his prayer, they make an appeal through us to reach the world. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, Jesus, excuse me, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus became sin even though he had no sin so that we might take on his very righteousness. So put another way, in Galatians 3, Paul says again, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that would be us, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So again, Jesus uh, took on the curse to overwhelm and destroy the curse. He redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. So even though Jesus had no reason to be accursed, 
Even though he had no reason, he did not sin. He became sin, and then he took on a curse for us. So this burden, this curse, strikes me as significant. Don't you suppose that it was this weight that would feel unbearable? And do you suppose reflecting upon this weight, this burden, helps us to see how the cross was necessary and how genuinely painful it was for Jesus to carry what he carried? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's what we sit with on Good Friday. As we meditate on the reality of the cross, we face the possibility that this what, what would it be like if this was the end of the story? Jesus being crushed voluntarily under the weight of our sin. So, you know, we sing the old gospel song sometimes on Good Friday. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Right? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Were you there when the sun refused to shine? And, it, and we all grapple with the reality that even though we weren't there in history, we have all been there in our lives. We have all been part of the reason that Jesus responded this way to the human predicament. And so in that way, we grapple with, through tears, yeah, we were there when they crucified our Lord. And that's the thing that causes us, as the song says, to tremble. Sometimes it causes us to tremble. So we can imagine a little bit more as we reflect why Jesus might have cried these particular words. But as we focus on Psalm 22, and as we look at this psalm together, there's one more detail that we should catch if these were Jesus' last words. Now, there's a common practice in Hebrew culture, and it, it's not hard for us to imagine. Uh, what's, what's something, you know, so Brian and I were looking up at him in the hymnal this morning, and in order for us to find it in the table of contents, you don't go look by, sometimes you find it by song title, but in a hymnal, more often you find it by the index of what? First lines, right? So you find it by the index of first lines. So you go in and you find, if you want to find a mighty fortress is our God, then you go in there and you find it that way. And, and just by saying the opening line of a mighty fortress is our God, it flashes before us, oh, that's the psalm about Christ's supremacy and about God's sovereignty and about how even when it looks like we're going to lose, we win. And so we, we imagine the end of the song just when we hear the first line of the song. Well, it was common then uh, to quote the opening line of a psalm, and everybody understood that they were trying to tell that story. So it was like shorthand for saying, I want to tell you the story of Psalm 22. In order to do that, I'm just going to tell you the opening line. And at least in part, that's what Jesus is doing. He said, I don't have breath or time to sing the whole song, but I'm going to sing the first line. I'm going to cry the first line, and you're going to get what I mean. And people around begin to observe, right? And they get it. They go, even the, the centurion, the guard goes, oh, wow, surely this was the Son of God. You know what this is like to speak in shorthand, right? Or we talk about a married couple and we say, gosh, they were married so long, they would just finish each other's sentences. 
right? You get the first couple of words, and then you can say the rest. Uh, it's great when your kids get old enough to watch, you know, goofy, stupid movies that we watch and laugh about, because now we have a shorthand, like Morgan and I can speak dumb and dumber about situations, and I can just say, yeah, these Rocky Mountains, and kind of look at her, and she'll laugh, you know, because we, we understand what's coming next. You just have to say the first part. So Jesus was quoting for us, praying truly, but leaving us with the story that was happening and was about to happen. Look at Psalm 22, and about halfway through, a little more than halfway through, in verse 22, this is what the psalmist says. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him, you offspring of Israel. Verse 24, for He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Isn't that beautiful? God has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. What comforting words to meditate on as you're literally giving your life away on the cross Surely God has not abandoned or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. That's the song that Jesus is singing on the cross. That all the ends of the earth will remember one day and they will return to the Lord. That his suffering would not be in vain. For kingship, as the psalm says, begin, belongs to the Lord. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations that they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. To a people unborn, to us. Jesus had us in mind. He foresaw what we would need at this time, in this place, in 2021. And that's what he was singing about. That's what he was saying. And this is what we're saying as well. This is the hope of the season of Lent, that we might draw near to the cross, that we might feel the weight of the cross, and that we might wait there as our cries join the cry of Jesus and we realize a resurrection that we believe is certain to follow. Amen.